we are in a time where it has become clear that civilization is incapable of sustaining current levels of economic growth, agricultural cultivation, material consumption, and corporate greed at the expenses of future generations. The world has never been more aware of the impending climate disaster and in agreement that action is required. It is thought that there are over 40 million climate refugees in the world, life-threatening forest fires and dangerous levels of floodings are all occurring more frequently, all under a backdrop of continued investments in fossil fuels and deforestation of crucial rainforests, often under the cloud of corruption. While commitments have been made and 2050 targets set, the leading nations of the world continue to unregulate or even deregulate the enormous and seemingly infinite burning of fossil fuels and the industrial destruction of the natural world. The recent IPCC report has been labeled as a code red for humanity, detailing the potential warming pathways, finding that even mid-level emissions would lead to at least 2.5 degrees warming, which is a long road to catastrophe. This report should guide world leaders as they arrive in Glasgow. However, the world enters COP26 with the knowledge from the IPCC report that low emission pathways can keep global temperatures under 2 degrees. Also, we have seen over the last few years step forwards in decarbonization technology and its feasibility. So the opportunity, while slipping more and more out of reach every day, is still within grasp. It's time for the world and its leaders to grab it and COP26 could be the last chance. We, a group of environmental professionals, are convinced of the gravity of this moment and will, with you the listener, explore the context, topics, possible and eventual outcomes of COP26 through a series of podcasts. We hope you enjoy listening. Hello and welcome to the first entry in our podcast series where we will be discussing all things COP26. My name is Elliot and I'll be your host. Today I'm joined by a few friends of mine who I've been collaborating with on this series to try and give you a little bit of context about what COP26 is and what we should be expecting from the 26th United Nations Climate Change Conference in Glasgow this week. Harriet, welcome. How are you doing today? Very well, thanks. It's great to be here. It's great to have you. Thank you so much for being here. So, Harriet, I'm sure everyone listening has, hasn't managed to go even you know, the last couple of weeks without hearing some mention of COP26 or climate change. There's been a lot to speculate on from the government's net zero strategy that's just been announced, Greta Thunberg's impassioned speech at the Youth Climate Conference at the beginning of the month. Everyone from activist groups such as Insulate Britain to world leaders have been extremely vocal about their concerns during the build-up to this week. So I thought maybe you could tell us a bit about what COP26 is and what we're actually going to expect from this important week we have ahead of us here. Um, so this is actually one of a few conference of parties operated by the UN. We also had the first part of the Convention on Biological Diversity in October. And next year we'll have the 15th UN Convention to Combat uh, Desertification. Um, of course, all these conferences have been delayed due to the pandemic and Glasgow has and uh, they'd initially prepared to host the conference in November last year, but due to 
due to the pandemic, it's only now able to take place. But essentially, COP26 is the big meeting of all the UN members where they sit down and discuss the state of our planet and what needs to be done to address climate change. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I can remember where conversations concerning climate, concerning climate change were only just two years ago. And there's been a lot riding on COP26 as it's sort of the, the biggest meeting, uh, the biggest conference we've had uh, since Paris back in 2015, um, which we'll talk a bit more about later. But I think the pandemic, for one, has really given us a lot of perspective on just how, how we use this planet, how resource intensive our lives have become. And it's only now I feel we're beginning to acknowledge that there are real constraints on that. Yeah, exactly. And I think the pandemic has definitely highlighted this. I think it started, um, you know, with the visible differences in the reduced sort of air pollution around the world that we saw at the beginning of the pandemic. And it's sort of grown from there, I think, as well over the the last couple of years where we've seen sort of the terrible consequences of climate change, you know, from wildfires in Australia and America to flooding even in Europe as well and extreme heat waves all over the all, all over the world. So the conference begins on the 31st of October. Um, what are you expecting to see from the talks that are going to take place over the next couple of days? Um, so there is a programme that's been put together um, as to what sort of issues and areas will be addressed on which days. But I think the main issues we should be hoping to be discussed are where we've come since the conference in 2015 and what needs to be done now. We're now six years on from the Paris Agreement, so we should be reflecting on how to better improve our adherence to the agendas that have developed in respect to the Paris Agreement and promote progress towards the targets that UN members have established following this meeting. Um, We'll also be hearing a lot about NDCs, which are nationally determined contributions, which are non-binding national targets created by countries to cut or curb uh, greenhouse gas emissions. So these NDCs are requirements from the Paris Agreement six years ago, and countries um, are actually required to create refreshed versions of them every five years and this conference is taking place um where well this now after these six years this is where the first new ndcs are going to be refreshed so yes it's quite critical to be um talking about the new and updated targets this year so the paris conference represented maybe arguably but a considerable leap forward in terms of how our governments frame policy approaches towards climate change um it was the first globally recognized agreement on target contributions towards greenhouse gas emissions which you've just talked about through the the nationally determined contribution framework um and that aims to limit uh, global warming by 1.5% Celsius. But you said you found some more criticisms in these already. Um, And I suppose this is something that you're hoping gets quite a lot of attention uh, at COP26. Yeah, I mean, of course, the Paris Agreement represented massive progress in the way that um, international political, well, yeah, how politicians sort of recognise climate issues. But whilst countries have been announcing their short-term targets for 2030, the targets are not without their issues. I I think at the current level of contributions, it looks as though we're actually 
will still be increasing emissions in nine years time, not rather than decreasing them. And if we continue, I, I went to a talk earlier this week and I heard that if we continue at the rate of decarbonisation of the global energy systems as we were from 2014 to 2018, it'll take us 150 years to decarbonise the energy system. So this is not the nine year target that we're sort of aiming for realistically to keep to the 1.5 degree Celsius target. And sort of as well as all of this, there are com comments about the latest IPCC report that were leaked the other week, where a lot of countries said that they wanted parts removing and they think that there shouldn't be such extreme targets for decarbonisation. Um, and then there's sort of what we say to the largest economy in the world. What, the, the US? I mean, it's, it's been a turbulent couple of years since the, since the Paris conference. Obama will likely maintain a very strong historical track record for progressing agendas towards the climate crisis, where Washington's concerned. Um, but then all of that was scrapped by Trump coming in, and then it was, it's just been re-signed again by Joe Biden, who does seem to represent that the US stands to recover its role as a, as a climate leader. Um, we, could, we could be here all day discussing that, though. I mean, but I suppose our main point is that, forgive me if I'm wrong, it's quite disconcerting that neither the US or China have made any significant gains in their climate agendas. Um, there is also the problem of not every world leader attending the conference as well. So the Chinese president, um, one of the most really critical le uh, leaders for conversations around climate change, is not attend well, supposedly it's not supposed to be attending the conference this year. Um, although there are rumours that he may be attending by video call. Um, it's also unsure about other world leaders as well. So uh, the Indian Prime Minister and I think the Brazilian President as well are sort of unsure about whether they'll be attending. I mean, it, it's a difficult one. I mean, you, you say, is it because of COVID? Are they not travelling because of that? It, it, who knows? Uh, either exactly. way, it's, it's concerning that that these major economies not, might not be getting the right representation that, that we need from them. Um, at the table here but anyway let, let's just backtrack a little bit um, so you said that the program runs until the 12th of November uh, what are we really hoping for? Um, well for starters I think that broadly we can expect conversations to revolve around our reliance on fossil fuels uh, particularly coal and what will perhaps be the next biggest step in transition away from this dependency and allocating more resources and investment to renewable energy. And this could incorporate a number of plans from increasing incentives for car manufacturers to encourage shifts to electric vehicles, um, increasing incentives uh, to agricultural workers to curb deforestation rates. There's a lot of options out there. And I think it's important that whatever is agreed on allows um, provisions for each country to handle this in a way that's economically viable for them and is fair to their historical carbon emissions, particularly as we recover from the pandemic as well. Um, but then on the flip side, it also offers the absolutely necessary contributions um, that now must be made if we are to consider a future on this planet. And with regard to uh, developing countries, I was reading about the $100 billion fund that's to be allocated mm -hmm. to support developing countries. Do you know, any, do you know a lot about that? Or? Yeah, so it's supposed to be a hard target, um, but contributions from the developed world um, haven't been meeting this target. But I think that needs to be an important talking point around COP26 and um, 
and that sort of how do we build infrastructure that prevents loss of lives and homes and protects protects those who are most vulnerable to residual effects of the way we have treated our planet. We've grown up as part of a generation in which natural disasters are not, um, are not so few and far between. And no, not all of it, but a huge amount of it is due to our reliance on fossil fuels and production of greenhouse gases. And this is what we need to be talking about. Mm. Because there seems to be, from what I've seen, a lot of call from developing nations for there to be more stringent targets on greenhouse gas emissions, especially from, um, especially for that to be implemented by more developed nations. Um, I know that this is something the Environment Minister from Grenada has been very outspoken about, um, and the role that the G20 will have uh, COP26. Uh, I'm going to read you a recent quote of his. He said that uh, he recently said that the G20 are responsible for 80% of global emissions. If they really want to address that gap, then between them, they can. It is really that simple. They have the know-how to manage it, they have the resources, and they have the responsibility. I think what we've seen is that these are notions that have been echoed strongly amongst the most vulnerable countries, and there seems to be this pressure mounting on you know, countries that are members of the G20 or some of the world's leading economies to recognise these calls. Yeah, exactly. And I think we should expect that the developing nations will have much more of a voice in these affairs going forward. And COP26, we hope, should be exemplary of that. Um, We should be seeing that really in the conversation. We can talk about short-term NDC targets and long-term net zero targets forever, but at the end of the day, we actually don't have forever we have very limited time whilst we keep saying we are at a critical point we are in some ways past that critical point because as particularly for developing nations they're already experiencing catastrophic conditions as a result of climate change we're past sort of that make or break point because of whether we experience like devastating effects we're already experiencing them um we're now at the point of how to reduce these effects as much as possible to save as many people and as much of the planet as possible and i hope that cop 26 will be yet another turning point um in terms of the way this conversation is progressed um in the global arena sort of with acknowledgement for the most developed countries of how much they have contributed to greenhouse gas emissions historically and with a more focus on how we're going to be helping these developing countries tackle these effects that we're already seeing of climate change. I mean, the evidence is there, isn't it? Current contributions simply aren't enough to meet the proposed net zero target. I don't know, have you read the recent UN FCCC report that was released uh, back in February? Is that the NDC synthesis report, do you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so for our listeners who aren't familiar with the UNFCCC, it's the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. Uh, And this oversees the registry progress of nationally determined contribution targets. Um, Earlier this year, they published a report that measured the progress of NDCs up to December of 2020, uh, which interestingly was uh, supposed was published after COP26 was originally supposed to take place. And the figures, well, they're concerning because at the time that report was published, emissions were at 3% lower than uh, they were under the previous NDCs. And we're still waiting for some major players such as India and China to publish their emissions. Uh, But essentially, they would fall significantly short of what's recommended either way. 
Yeah, and then you have further complications, such as the fact that the first global stock take, which is part of the Paris Agreement, so to measure the progress of these NDCs, um, the first one will take place in 2023 and then every five years after that. So there will only be two stock takes of these targets before 2030. And we hear all this talk about what we have to do in this decade being being at such a critical point in which we need to turn things around. So surely every five years, starting in 2023, is a bit too little too late. Yeah, that's crazy, isn't it? I mean, we've spoken a lot about targets. Uh, Let's move on to what I believe will be another critical talking point this week, and that's to do with investment. We've touched on how the pandemic has, for better or for worse, affected the approach uh, affected approaches towards climate change. I think it's going to be very important now to look at how do we integrate our economic recovery programs with climate agendas. You know, we hear all these world leaders talking and saying things about build back better. And I think a key feature of COP26 needs to be gearing this idea around sustainable investment, uh, sustainable business growth, sustainable job creation, etc. Yeah, um, exactly. You're right. And, you know, regardless of whether the pandemic happened or not, there's been a need for a major boost in funds allocated to things like adaption or loss and damage for developing countries, um, investing in greener technologies and mainstreaming climate risk in investment portfolios. There's a lot to unpack there. Yeah, and how this will be progressed is something we should be looking to come out of of COP26, whether it will mean an end to government support and subsidisation for the fossil fuel industry uh, or a commitment to restrict bailouts for high polluters um, and transition to a state where we can uh, financially incentivise greener investments. Uh, I guess that's something we're just going to have to wait and see. Yeah, and I'm sure it's something we'll talk about in the following podcasts as well. In our next section, we will be looking at the United Kingdom's role as the host of COP26, what challenges and criticisms the British government has faced in its approach towards climate agendas, and what progress the UK has made towards better performance on environmental issues. Alex, welcome to the podcast, sir. Thank you, Elliot. Glad to be here. So let's talk a bit about the United Kingdom as the host for COP26 and what this means. Do you want to briefly talk about the importance of the host country in the conference? Yeah, so the most successful COP conference, uh, COP21 in Paris, which some agree that was the world's greatest diplomatic success of recent decades at least, has in large part been credited to the host France with their openness, uh, their diplomacy, and the mutual respect that they brought to the talks uh, being praised by many of the parties. And I think this demonstrates the importance of respected hosts and a good negotiating team. In terms of the UK's journey to COP, we know that originally the conference was supposed to take place last year. And at the time, I believe it was presided over by Claire Perry O'Neill, the former Minister of Energy and Clean Growth. Uh, She was then removed and replaced by Alok Sharma, the former Conservative Business Secretary, in February last year. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. 
And at the time, it was argued that that was somewhat of a controversial appointment, to say the least. Yeah, so at the time, well, I mean, Sharma has somewhat of a record of voting against proposals to stop climate change and obviously coming from his business brief. Uh, So it seemed like a bit of an interesting choice, uh, perhaps underlined by the decision to have an all-male hosting team, which has been criticised by activists and observers. Um, But perhaps more problematic for Britain is the views of its Prime Minister Boris Johnson, who has seemingly come a very long way in only five years in terms of his stance on climate change. He commented after the Paris conference in 2015 that the science behind it was without foundation. But now that we've seen recently, he's insisted that his opinion has changed and that attitudes change over time, which is which is fair enough. And whether he means it or not, or whether it's a, simply a political strategy, only time will tell. Yeah, because there's been a lot of criticism directed at the UK due to things like foreign aid cuts. And this is quite problematic in terms of how it influences outside perceptions of us. Um the director for the International Institute for, Envir- for the Environment and Development recently said that the UK risked undermining its capacity to provide global leadership as it prepares to host the UN Climate Summit. Yes, so there's been some condemnation of the UK foreign aid cuts that were announced in November. The decision made waves amongst least developed countries and in some ways started the UK off on the wrong foot in some of these negotiations with LDCs. And the cuts themselves suggested a step back from the UK in its support of climate investment in the global south. And in fact, the UK's actions in financial investment in the global south are arguably more damaging than regenerative. Just take two examples, the 720 million uh, export finance the UK has pledged to the um, gas, a natural gas project in Mozambique offshore, and also 700 million for the design, construction and operation of an oil refinery in a, in Oman. So some may say that it's not the kind of behaviour you'd expect from someone aspiring to be a climate leader or from the host of the world's large, largest climate conference coming up. And let's not forget that these issues of continued fossil fuel investment aren't just evident in foreign investment, but also domestic. Right. Are you referring to the Cumbrian coal mine project? Yes, exactly. So the message that that sends uh, from the government by allowing the potential development of this mine is one of deep ignorance and a detachment from the global picture. We know that the government has released reports stating that emissions from choking coal has to stop by 2030 to reach climate targets. But this mine would commit the UK to coal emissions until 2049. So there's been it's been a topic of contention on the lead up to COP with activists calling the UK hypocritical and that they, the UK is risking to undermine its credibility for the upcoming summit. We've seen a lot of stuff in the news as well about these campaign groups such as Insulate Britain and their actions in the last couple of weeks. Um, I'm sure you saw their protest at the Blackwall Tunnel and the response has been quite emotional from, from both sides of the argument. Yeah, so... I mean, I think that it cannot be underestimated how out of touch with reality that UK mainstream politics can seem at times when it comes to action on climate. And an issue which has such a multi-generational impact will always lead to high emotions. And often normal campaign or protest tactics can, can be easily ignored or not cut through the noise. So I think this is why disruptive protests are becoming more frequent. Um, but I do, however, believe that 
climate activists need to identify who they want to disrupt and who they need to bring onto their side. And in recent uh, Insulate Britain protests, disrupting working class Britons on their drive to work and at times even providing obstacles to emergency services, that has the potential to both minimise and discredit their message. But of course, it's a difficult line to draw as we can continue to emit dangerous levels of greenhouse gas emissions into the atmosphere and the need to protest is only going to increase. Um, but I hope that heading into COP26, world leaders and the general public can, can draw on a powerful message delivered to them by youth climate protests, as I'm sure we were all inspired in, in 2019 by those. Yeah, I mean, whilst it is inspiring to see the commitment that some of these campaign groups have to the cause, I, I really can't condone actions, things like where, you know, the point where you're blocking ambulances from accessing hospitals there's a real issue there and interestingly uh, actually both both co-leaders of the Scottish Greens uh, Lorna Slater and Patrick Harvey have both come out in support of these protests um, Slater for instance is quoted as saying the protests are meant to be disruptive and I'm sure we, we we're yet to see quite a few appearances from these campaigners over the next couple of weeks Yes, yes, I, I do agree with you on that. But I do think that this is just one campaign group. And I do think that it's really important to recognise the work that has been done by campaigners and activists in Britain for decades around this issue. And it's in large part thanks to them that we are now at a point where we have a net zero target strategy, as well as more discussion and engagement on climate in our politics. Um, but I do think it's important to recognise that while we have, there have been issues that we've talked about leading up to COP, some of the messaging has been really bold. The Prime Minister is calling on the Western world to do more and shown a recognition of the effects on the global south. And I do believe that Boris Johnson recognises that this summit will be a part of his legacy as Prime Minister. And there is still hope that Britain can take leadership at this conference. So the government's published its net zero strategy just over a week ago. Uh, have you had a look at it? What did you think? Is it everything that you were sort of hoping it would be? In a way, yes, I think it is. I think the fact we have a comprehensive net zero strategy in itself is a very promising sign. Um, the government seem adamant that this is one of the most, if not the most, thorough um, climate strategies that has been published to date. And in a lot of ways, it, it kind of is. The comprehensive nature of the strategy, the strength and the sectoral reach of the targets um, suggest that it might be. And there have been some bold commitments for targets by 2030 and 2035. And these sectoral targets that have been put out are seemingly in line with, with a lot of policy advice and research that's out there. So while it isn't without faults on the investment side particularly, I do think that this is a type of commitment and ambition that can bring about a new emphasis on climate change in, in the UK. And do you think... Uh, so if you sort of look at a historical record and see what this new strategy represents now, it, do you think this is a way that the UK could re-establish itself as a climate leader? Well, well, leadership on climate strategies and policies is important. I, I do think that in the future and going forward, true international leadership on climate will come from a country or a block of countries that decarbonize in the quickest and most efficient way possible. And then they can act as a template for the rest of the world. Um, because for now, this strategy is just that, a strategy written down, not put into action yet. 
and there has been strong criticism on the lack of financial investment to support the targets. The government's stated aim is to install 600,000 heat pumps per year by 2028. Um, So the maximum of only 90,000 pumps to be covered over the next three years falls way too short and this funding isn't simply isn't there and i really think that's the major worry on their strategies is the funding side but i do think uh, in terms of the uk i think our status as a climate leader hangs in the balance of on the outcome of cop 26 the fact that the build-up hasn't been smooth sailing does mean that if the conference isn't a success there will be a light shone on the uk and on boris johnson and and the, and the government However, the media concerns in the build-up could end up being relevant to the actual talks that take place. Um, Alex Sharma has been diligently meeting with dozens of countries in the build-up, and many key players realise that the time is now. So if the UK can use the boost of having a comprehensive net zero strategy and utilise some of the professional diplomacy shown to them by France back in 2015 um, and bring about a positive outcome, at the conference, then the UK and Boris Johnson can revel in the success of climate leadership and this could bring about the ambitious decarbon transition that we need. Thank you for joining us for our first episode of Put Out the Fire. We hope you have enjoyed it and invite you to tune into our next episode where we will be delving deeper into what progress has been made since the Paris Agreement and how this can inform critical talking points throughout COP26.